Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com slash college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lifcott-Hames, and today we'll be highlighting some of the biggest changes in college admissions, key details that rising seniors need to look out for this summer and fall as they prepare their applications, and we'll be answering more of your listener questions. Joining me today is one of Getting In's experts, Park Muth. As listeners will remember, Park spent nearly 30 years as a dean and an admissions officer at the University of Virginia. He's now a private consultant who helps students and families in the admissions process. Welcome back, Park. Thanks so much, Julie. It's great to be here. We launched this podcast in September 2015, and since that time, we've heard about lots of changes in the admissions process, from the new SAT to new financial aid policies to the looming possibility from the Harvard Turning the Tide report that colleges might try to do something to lessen the arms race feeling that accompanies all of this. Park, what's one big thing rising seniors should look out for this summer and fall as they dive into the process? Well, the thing that I'm trying to get out now is be careful of the hype. There are lots of people out there that want to profit from your fear. Because of all these changes that are coming out on SATs and all the things you've raised, there are a lot of people and businesses that are trying to scare you. And I don't think it's quite in the order of clickbait and TMZ. There are still a lot of people out there that are trying to get you to look at what they're saying, read what they're saying, hear what they're saying, so that you're going to use their business. So people need to understand that the stories that are going out now, at least in some cases, are written in ways to scare people. And Mm. one of the things I'm seeing is that the stories that get the most press are the ones that are focused on the most selective schools. They're unending stories about how impossible it is to get into these places. And so parents are now starting a full-court press at, you know, grade 8, And parents are pushing their kids harder. And as Julie, as your book describes, you know, parents are taking over the lives of their children. Now, I think I'd be lying if I said that students shouldn't pay attention to the fact that it's hard to get into a small set of schools. But I guess I'd also be misleading if I stopped at that point. Over 50 percent of the schools, colleges this year came in under their enrollment numbers. So what that statistic tells you is, in some ways, life is good. You know, there are going to be many great choices out there as long as you don't get caught up in the hype and the fear. So what I advise students now is to to look around and to go back to the mantra of this podcast, which is it's much more about fit than it is about the name of the school. And don't fall for the hype that there are only a handful of schools to go to. And if you do that, I think if you have optimism and faith, this process could actually be kind of fun. And I'm not <laughs> just saying that. <laughs> Park, my goodness, does anyone believe this process can be fun? You clearly do. You know what? 
I actually do as well. I think if we do kind of widen those blinders and stop only looking at big brand name schools, for those of us who are kind of uh, prone to that, then we can realize that America is full of riches when it comes to colleges and universities. And as you've just said, 50% of the schools came in under-enrolled this year, meaning they didn't you know, have quite enough students to fill the spots they had available. That can allow us to breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. And I really appreciate that you said that a lot of people are trying to prey on the fears of families and students. Um, thanks for calling it out calling it what it is. And of course, you're not that type of person at all. That's why we have you on the podcast. You're there helping to guide families in a thoughtful, informed way through a process that has a lot of variables and can seem pretty mysterious. Um, so Park, thanks for being you uh, in the lives of your students and their families, but also thanks for being an expert on this podcast. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. Okay. So now it's time for listener questions. We got this email from Sarah, a mom in Boulder, Colorado. I've not yet heard your podcast touch on the student athlete. Our son is a junior and a good student, 4.3 weighted GPA with solid SAT scores. He's also a dedicated athlete who is qualified to participate in his sport at a lower level Division I school or most any Division Three school. His personal goal is to attend a Division I school as a student athlete, but his father and I are torn about the pressures of Division One athletics and are hoping he'll keep his options open for D3 schools as well. We are also proponents of the quote-unquote big fish philosophy in which students can thrive in the big fish in a small pond environment, both for academics and athletics. Any student athlete expertise you have would be welcome. Park, what do you think? Well, I think Sarah's raised some good questions and some big issues that aren't just simply about being an athlete in college. I mean, there's a lot of data out there that says that being a big fish is better than being a small fish. Malcolm Gladwell in his chapter in David and Goliath talks about that, and it's something we've talked about here before. Um, but I'm going to dredge up some of my personal story to talk a little bit about this. Since ages ago, I was a recruited athlete. Were and you? I did a college... Yeah, I was. What sport? Track. I did a college tour like a lot of other people did, and I looked at some places that were Division three because I liked the idea of small liberal arts. And... Both my top D1 school and my top D3 schools, they're both highly ranked academically. And I like what I saw. I mean, on the, on the one hand, if I had gone to one of them, the D3 school, I would have already been their record holder. Um, so I'm not sure how good this Sarah's son really is. If he's really good, then a D1 school makes a little better sense to me because – while it's true you being a big fish is okay i mean if you're a shark in a pond you're not going to you're not going to thrive i mean you're so i'll beat hmm. that metaphor to death nice so you can actually be too big of a fish right there are some fish that are too big for ponds and then find yourself not challenged and not hungry or very hungry and not sated but ultimately to me it comes down to it's not about winning stuff. I mean, of course it's about winning stuff, but it's not really what do I remember. I remember the practices, the time spent with teammates, enjoying the company, traveling to places, hanging out with people. All that was what stuck with me and still sticks with me. So wherever he's going to go, he should talk with people on the teams. And his coach 
should talk to their coaches. He should talk with the coaches. I mean, I'm still in touch with my coaches from college. And that, to me, is more important than whether you're getting a name in a local paper or a national paper by a sport you play, because the odds are very much against anybody making a living in any sport that they're involved with in college. Nice. Thanks for that. I guess I would add, first of all, that I was not a recruited athlete, (laughs) but I did end up rowing crew for one year, um, freshman year at Stanford, which was an incredible challenge and, and pure joy as well. But I would say, you know, being less informed about this than Park is, I just would add that I would hope if this was my kid, Sarah, that he wasn't compromising on either side, that if there's a school here that is going to provide the athletic challenge he's hungry for and the academic opportunity he's hungry for, um, that's uh, that's kind of the sweet spot. You want him to continue to be that dedicated student athlete. And so to go to a place where he will be valued and challenged and have a chance to grow wearing both of those identities. Okay, uh, next we've got a voicemail from Anne, a mom in California. Hi, this is Anne. I am the mother of a high school junior in the Los Angeles area. My daughter has done some significant legwork with testing and college visits in the past year, and she will be finalizing her application list this summer. My question is, how much work can or should she be doing on the common application and other college essays over the summer? We've been told that she should not work on the essays over the summer because a lot of personal growth takes place in the fall, so the essays end up being completely revised. However, my daughter plays a fall sport and will be spending 20 hours a week at practice and competitions in the fall in addition to taking three AP classes and holding a leadership position at her school. I know from friends that this fall is an extremely busy time for all high school seniors, and we're looking at ways that we can minimize the burden and maximize her sleep. I would appreciate any thoughts you might have on this, and thank you so much for the podcast. I've listened to every episode, and it's been such a great help to me as I try to figure out ways to guide my daughter through this application maze. So, Park, is there an optimal time to work on essays? What do you think? Well, there's a lot of discussion about this among counselors, both private and working with schools. And the dis- there are lots of disagreement. Uh, for me, I am a proponent that people should start in the summer. And while students may change between the summer and the time they're applying, That's become almost less true than ever, and the reason I say that is because more and more students are applying early decision or early action. So those deadlines tend to be November 1st. Um, Now that so many more people are using those options, it's no longer January 1st, it's November 1st, and that's a lot earlier. So that means students, when they're starting off in their senior year, they're getting used to classes, they have their activities, they're really busy doing all these things, and they have to get their essays done by November 1st. So I encourage students to write things over the summer. Now, it may be that over in September or October, the student may have a revelation and decide to write a different essay, but to me, there's no downside in practicing writing. Yeah. I mean, so what if you don't use it? You've learned how to write an essay, yeah. and that's only going to help you write the next essay. So if you have time in the summer, 
I would use it because if you haven't gone into a senior year when you're taking APs and doing classes and all the other stuff, it is very intense. And I think the summer is a time where you're not under as much stress and you can put more effort into your writing. Yeah, nice. I mean, this this daughter plays a fall sport. Mom says she's going to be spending 20 hours a week at practice, as you know many athletes do. So, um, yeah, I couldn't agree more that summer is an opportune time for her to get started and, you know, probably end up feeling a lot less stressed as she goes through the fall. Cool. Okay. So we've got another uh, listener email. This is from Catherine, a mom in New York City. Hi, Julie. I'm the mother of a 10th grader at an independent school in NYC. I have read your book and I so much appreciate your point of view on parenting and the college process. Thank you. I'm dismayed by the test prep industry, though. I see flourishing in our cohort of families in NYC independent schools. I believe the 100-plus hours my daughter will spend on test prep and the thousands of dollars our family will spend on that effort is 100% useless in terms of developing her as a person, enriching her life, increasing her intellect, and building her character. Additionally, it's outrageous to realize how many families cannot afford to consider test prep. So it's a rigged system which reinforces access to college for wealthy families and kids. I would love to just say no to the test prep process, but of course, when every other student is getting and paying for the benefit of prep, it feels insane to opt out. I deeply resent this economically elitist business and poor use of our daughter's time and our money. Oh, I feel for you, Catherine. <laughs> Park, what's your take on test prep? Yeah, well, the clearly testing has both ethical and economic implications. I mean, there are tons of studies that show that SAT scores are tied to social class. The higher you are in the class, the more, higher your average scores tend to be. Now, it's a little more complicated than that because Asian students, even at the low end, tend to earn higher score than others. But nevertheless, one thing I would say is that there really are free resources which any student can use. There are sample tests on the College Board website. Khan Academy is working with the College Board to provide free tutorials. Is that the same as a $1,000 an hour private tutor? Clearly not, but there aren't that many people that are spending that kind of money to get test prep. But I'm actually going to switch gears and approach the question from a point of view that I think rarely gets mentioned. You know, clearly the SAT and other standardized tests are not the best measure of success. I mean, it's academic program and grades that predicts much better than that. But it's also important to future success is how willing is a student to put in time. It's more the development of certain character traits mm -hmm. that studies show that these are great for the real world. Angela Lee Duckworth, the woman known for grit. her book Grit and her TED Talk on grit, you know, she she finds that as a far better predictor than talent alone. And her definition of grit basically is a willingness to work hard under virtually any circumstances. It's competing and persevering. Now, if you think about SAT prep in these terms, it teaches more about those things than about a particular subject. It teaches students to put in effort in when it's needed. All of us have, I think, jobs which sometimes require us to do stuff we don't particularly love. But we still put in the work. And the the ability to do these things well is what many 
business leaders and others look when they're hiring people. So it's not the results of a test score that's important. It's the strength of character. So when she says these things don't help anything, maybe in a particular area of math or vocabulary or whatever that's true, but showing up every day and putting in the work is actually a good habit to get into. Yeah, I agree with you um, in many ways, Park. I think her comment, um, Catherine's comment, that all of this, you know, the dollars spent and the time spent on test prep would be a 100% useless. I, you know, made a note in my head there, like, no, I don't think it's 100% useless. It's really a question of what is this in furtherance of? And what I was struck by is this mom seems really clear about what her values are, you know, the things that she could, that her daughter could do with the hours not spent on test prep, the things the family could do with the dollars not spent on test prep. And so I want to encourage Catherine to let this be a decision that's right for her daughter and herself as a, you know, the, the daughter and the family. Um, in my book, I actually talk about the last two chapters are, you know, reclaim yourself as a parent and be the parent you want to be. The third to last chapter is listen to kids. There, I profile three kids who basically said, get out of my way. I want to do this myself. I'm not going to hire someone to prep and package me. I want to do this work myself. And the voices of those young adults really demanding that they have the opportunity to chart their own path through this process, despite the benefits that come from, you know, all of the prep and the enrichment um, offered by packagers and handlers. Those voices of young adults I found very compelling, which is why I included them in the book. What this comes down to for me, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, Catherine. Sit down with your daughter and think about what she wants. Ask her, honey, how much of this test prep do you want to do? We believe in you. We know you're you're hardworking. We know you care about, you know, getting to the next level. You know, what's the right way for us as a family to go through this process? In other words, you do not have to do what every other student is doing. You do not have to do what every other family in your particular neighborhood in New York is doing. I'm not saying it's easy to to opt out. It's tremendously hard, particularly if you're in a highly influential community where everybody knows what everybody is doing, air quotes here on everybody, and um, you can feel tremendous peer pressure. But that peer pressure is what's leading all of us to participate in this arms race, which harms kids. So Catherine, have the courage to do uh, what you know in your gut is right for you and your family and listen to your kid and, um, and ultimately, you know, let her make that decision. And finally, I have some bittersweet news to share with you guys. The Getting In podcast will be wrapping up in a few weeks, just two more episodes after this one. I'm grateful to our experts. I'm especially grateful to you, our listeners, who've truly shaped our conversations by asking key questions that families across the country and around the world are finding incredibly valuable. From everyone here at Getting In, thank you. And Park, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, Julia, it was great. It is a little bittersweet to uh, be wrapping this up, and I learned so much from all the experts here and, and from you, our fearless leader. So thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. It's been great to have you on the other end of the line here. Hey, we've got another episode to tape next week. Can you come back? Sure, I'd love to. Great. Listeners, it's your last chance to send us your voice memos and emails. Our email address is gettingin@slate.com. And you can also leave a voicemail on our hotline. That number is 929-999-4353. 
You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at gettinginpod. That's all one word, getting in P-O-D. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our senior producer is Kristen Meinzer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julie Lifcott-Hames. And remember, it's not just about getting in. It's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, on iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book to try out from Audible is In the Country We Love by Diane Guerrero. She's an actor on the TV shows Orange is the New Black and Jane the Virgin. When Guerrero was just 14 years old, her parents were detained and deported while she was at school. Born in the U.S., Guerrero was able to remain in the country and continue her education. There are 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States, and this memoir is a powerful starting place to understand their hidden struggles. If you want to listen to In the Country We Love or many other books, Audible has it. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com slash college. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash college.